This is Erica in Edmonton, Shannon in Durham, and Chip in Durham. Welcome to the Audio Guide to Babylon 5, Episode 62, Gray 17 is Missing. Wait, I thought this was 63. Shush. (laughs) Hello, and thank you again for joining us here at the Audio Guide to Babylon 5. This is, in fact, episode 62. Uh, Last week, I I went on a quest and and discovered the missing episode, and here we are. We're able to do it. Um, And now we are beginning to close in on the end of season three. I know at the end of Spoiler Space, last time, Chip, you were very much not looking forward to this particular story. Hey, 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 that's a spoiler. Mm-hmm. Well, it's not anymore because we've seen it now. So. And you were wrong anyway. Mm-hmm. See, and that's what I wanted to know. I've Honestly, I have been ever since then intensely curious to find out how this story struck you this time around if you still hated it. And, you know, I was curious about how it was going to strike me. But weirdly, I was even more curious about how it's going to strike you. So, Chip, <laughs> what'd you think? Are you familiar with the Phantom Edit? Um... It, it, it's sort of, but not enough uh, to really know what you mean. And some of our listeners might not be. So there is this thing that somebody came up with to fix all of the problems with Star Wars Episode One: Phantom Menace, which uh, I understand, Erica, that you are actually a fan of. And honestly, mm-hmm. so am I. On, you know, <laughs> I, I don't I don't hate the prequels. I don't hate the Star Wars prequels. <laughs> I don't need the first one. <laughs> as soon as I was done watching this, I thought to myself, self, I really should sit down and do a phantom edit of Gray 17 is Missing and take out all the Gray 17 bits. Hmm. The rest of this episode has some amazing stuff in it. I despise, as much as I ever did before, everything else. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Right. I was the, I was pretty much the same way. I had forgotten that the storyline with uh, Delenn becoming Rager One and the Naroon Barkas thing, I had forgotten that that was this episode. The only mm-hmm. thing I remembered from Gray 17 is Missing is the Gray 17 is Missing plotline, which I thought was ridiculous at the time. So, bad memory. Great <laughs> I mean, things in this episode. Isn't this a class? This is the classic B five problem when you have the uh, the title that focuses on the one thing and you completely mm-hmm. forget that the B plot ever happened in this episode. That's kind mm-hmm. of what happens here. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's exactly what I was saying to Stephen, and I think it's exacerbated by the fact that so many titles of Pebble on Five episodes don't really tell you anything about either plot very specifically. Yeah. So the few times that we do get something that's very concretely pointing to a piece of the the one or one story or the other, TKO. It happened. Yeah, and it it, it almost <laughs> always happens to be. The, like the goofier, wackier, more inconsequential one that is, you know, either silly or kind of sucky or both. And that is exactly what happened here. It's what happened with Walkabout. So, um, so yes, I always have these sort of memories of, oh, gosh, Walkabout. Oh, boy, Grey 17 is missing. And then I watch them and it's it's not the chore that I expect it to be, which I guess in a way is nice because it's like a little little surprise for you when you're when you're watching it but it makes you a lot less interested in actually going to the work of watching those episodes and speaking of those episodes let's jump into what you need to know the command staff of babylon 5 are forming an army of light against devastating foes the shadows who seem to be vulnerable to telepaths The Rangers are a secret force within this army, and their leader recently traveled back in time a thousand years and, in a lovely bit of bootstrap paradoxing, founded the structure for the Mimbari way of life. So he's gone, and there's a job opening for Ranger One. Security Chief Michael Garibaldi's grandmother was a police officer in Boston, and former Chief Medical Officer Stephen Franklin has left his post to deal with issues of addiction. And that brings us to... Gray 17 is missing, in which Ivanova tracks down Stephen to get information to help them recruit telepaths to fight the shadows. Garibaldi finds the titular missing Gray 17, which is populated by a bizarre cult led by Freddy Krueger, who keeps a pet Zarg. Naroon, a warrior cast Minbari, wants control of the Rangers and vows to stop Delenn from becoming Entil Zah until Marcus teaches him a valuable lesson about himself. 
it's a very special episode of Babylon 5. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, (laughs) Zarg. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) So let's let's dive into this. Actually, I would kind of like to start where the episode starts, and that's just with the telepath recruitment process. Let's get this little little bit of stuff out of the way to start with. Um, I, I happen to personally think that the desperate applicant at the very beginning of the episode was another one of our less than stellar minor actors, but I think that aggravated, annoyed Zach is my favorite Zach. So, <laughs> so I was okay with it. What did you guys think about that scene and this whole plot line, the idea of trying to track down telepaths to fight a war? I was about to say, I wish that had been left on the cutting room floor, but then you said exasperated Zach. And okay, yeah, that's a fair point. Mm -hmm. Um, But yeah. Otherwise. Otherwise, um, I don't know that the actor could have necessarily done a much better job given the fact of what he was given to work with was kind of goofy, kind of ridiculous. Mm -hmm. I I don't necessarily think he could have played that scene much differently. Um, But even with exasperated Zach, it was not the best cold open for me. I agree. Uh, JMS can be very, very funny. He's done some screamingly funny stuff in Babylon 5. Every once in a while, he slips into shtick. And mm-hmm. I thought that that cold opener, exasperated Zach aside, was so shticky. And it's kind of a perfect bookend because I kind of hate Garibaldi's uh, uh, rapid fire routine at the end because that feels kind of sticky, too. Um, it didn't stick with me. <laughs> oh, dear. Okay. <laughs> uh, so uh, let's bring let's bring Stephen into it, because that's the, the one little bit he gets in this episode is when Ivanova tracks him down mm-hmm. and finds him. He's not doing as well as he was before. Chip, I think you had mentioned uh, when we were talking about Walkabout how you were a little bit surprised that he was not dealing with any after effects from stopping the stims use. It turns out there's a reason for that because it kicks in a little bit later. Um, that's a nice little hand wavy. Yeah, it's, <laughs> yeah, it's very con- it. it's very convenient, but it's you know it it is it, it is internally consistent. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yep. So, any thoughts on his uh, his performance or the character's sort of uh, anger and lashing out at uh, at Ivanova? Well, given he's apparently approaching the the worst of withdrawal symptoms, I, I was not at all surprised that he was snarly. Mm-hmm. Um, I was also not surprised that the character would step up and say, look, I can't do this when you keep coming to find me. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, with Garibaldi, it was more... You know, and, and it's not quite fair because, you know, with Garibaldi, he was, you know, looking to check up on Stephen, you know, tracking where he was spending his credits and then, you know, intercepting him to check in on him. This time, it's not – Ivanova's not checking up on him. She needs something that mm-hmm. only he can get. So I think his reaction to insisting that you can't contact me ever, ever, ever until I'm done with this was a touch unfair. But I understand mm-hmm. why he wanted to impress on her so strongly, you know, you've got to let me get this done. Mm-hmm. I think he he probably needs to believe at least that she that they're not going to come and try to find him again, mm-hmm. even though maybe they will. Right. I thought it was a good performance, too. I think Richard mm-hmm. Biggs is he's showing a different side of the character. And, you know, some science fiction characters are basically just an extension of the actor. You know, um, mm-hmm. look, it's it's sort of like uh, in Doctor Who. There are some doctors who are basically just their their actor being being him or maybe someday herself. <laughs> Her, yeah. uh, and then there are and then there are other uh, doctors, uh, Peter Capaldi in particular, who mm-hmm. have a, just an incredible range, and in they're being a sort of a different character at a given at a given time. And this was one of those moments when I was reminded that Richard Biggs has range, and mm-hmm. Franklin is Franklin is the furthest thing from the uh, cocky guy he was in Believers, say. This is this is just the other end of the spectrum, and it's very affecting to me. It's a short bit of this episode, uh, but I really like it. 
Mm-hmm. Yeah, me too. And I also really like the sort of continuity piece that, you know, we, we know that he has been or had been running this underground railroad for telepaths and mm-hmm. that, you know, that was a, a nice little seed that was planted early on. And it is, you know, it looks like it's about to, to grow and, and bear fruit of some sort. So or at least at least they're going to try to make it make it work. But it's it's nice when something like that is not left so that you go, hey, why didn't they think of this? Because mm-hmm. it's nice when our characters are are at least as smart as we are. Indeed. Mm-hmm. All right. Well, now that we've got that little brief bit of plot out of the way, what do you guys want to tackle first? Do you want to do the title plot or the better plot? Um, I'd like to I'd like to leap into a little bit of the better plot for a second. Um, remember that we're doing this in the master list order, uh, the list that JMS originally intended that these episodes to go out in, as opposed to the airing order, which is also replicated on the DVDs. And on your DVDs and uh, originally on the Primetime Entertainment Network, Walkabout aired between this episode and War Without In Part 2. And so... On the one hand, we get uh, Stephen going on walkabout, and then we would get um, him immediately getting deeper into the drug thing. But that's only a tiny part of this episode. This episode, And I think it actually works better with more space in between there anyway. Yeah. Meanwhile, the very first thing of consequence that happens in this episode is immediate fallout from the departure of Sinclair. Mm-hmm. And my Sinclair loving heart goes a little pitter pat when they open up the they open up that chest and uh, mm-hmm. his among his few possessions in there are his badge from the Battle of the Line, which was such a huge and important part of season one, and was pretty much largely forgotten for forever until then. So uh, mm-hmm. this is another reason. And I liked why- that he had it right next to his Ranger insignia. And, it's and, like, and, you know, side by side, um, the two halves. Yeah. Battle of the Line, Earth Force insignia, Ranger pin. I mean, it's 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 awesome. Um, so anyway, I, I think that, that was I, I thought that that was really affecting. And that is going to be my latest piece of evidence for why we are right to be doing this in the Lurker's Guide master list order. So there. <laughs> here, here. Yeah, actually, when this was was over, I pointed out to Stephen um, that the, the airing order had walkabout just previous to this, and he just looked at me with this look of utter disgust on his face, and he was just like, "What? That's ridiculous!" <laughs> he was offended. So, yes, he's definitely a fan of the master list order as well. <laughs> uh, well, as far as as far as um, Ranger One being gone, uh, which I do agree that it's nice that, that it is touched on immediately. Uh, I I really appreciated that first scene because you get like almost a, it's not exactly like a funeral or a wake or anything like that, but you have nice words being said about this character that we have just lost. And that is the word that uh, uh, that Roshen uses, you know, that he's he's lost because I'm I'm sure he doesn't know the whole truth of right. of the thing. Yeah. Uh, but it just, it does feel like a very very touching and respectful way to see off a character who is 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 gone now. And and yeah, I I just I, I appreciated that scene not just for that but also for the fact that we have something that I find kind of refreshing on television, especially when there's a lot of plots and machinations. You've got Roshen not wanting to take take control he doesn't want power he's mm-hmm. he's trying to beg delenn to to take that position and, and she's and not she super enthusiastic right. herself. yeah yeah mm-hmm. it's a great bit of character back and forth with each of them assuming that the other one should step up yeah yeah that was kind of wonderful that's, and uh, that's kind of consistent with what we've been told about the religious cast on mimbar mm-hmm. sort of self-effacing kind of thing yes which is just the internal consistency in this show makes me smile at every corner. And and then but because, you know, we don't want to get too boring because you got to have conflict to have drama. We, we get in this plot a nice little conventional turn and suddenly we have Naroon showing up. We got to have somebody to be the heavy uh, and <laughs> his grasp for power for himself and his cast is is uh, sort of the, the fulcrum upon which the, the rest of <laughs> the rest of this turns. I love John Vickery. Have I mentioned that before? 
You have, but please feel free to mention it again because he is fantastic. John Vickery is great. Mm-hmm. John Vickery makes this wonderful, and so far he's pretty much been, well, no, I take that back. He does this wonderful job of showing himself at the beginning of an episode to be all villain and all heavy and thuggish and zeroing in on what he thinks is his job. And then by the end of the episode, something happens to shake his perception, to to knock some sense into that bone, and <laughs> and he admits it. I mean, he he did this before with um with Sinclair Sinclair you know unbending enough to shake his hand in the human fashion, and again it happens again. He's managed to forget that you know hey there's something to these humans, and we get that wonderful delightful scene at the end. So. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah, I love that that Vickery can take all those bits and put them together into these little mini character arcs each time he appears. Yep, definitely. And I think I'm sure, you know, it's and to me that doesn't strike me as being, you know, inconsistent that, that he mm-hmm. had to to learn learn things about him about humans more than once because I mean Shannon especially you as a teacher probably know repetition <laughs> is an important thing. True. That's <laughs> a bit true. Yes. Yeah. Um so I love the I love this arc and all of the tension that is in it uh, about how Lanier is really worried. He's not just worried about Delenn, but he's worried about what this conflict might do to his people. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, it's not it, it's it's not just that Narun might actually kill Delenn, and he's worried enough about that. Mm-hmm. But the repercussions it would just it would it would light the fuse. It would it it, it would pop the cork. Take whatever metaphor you will. He's worried that. The religious caste would retaliate and everything would fall apart. Mm-hmm. And that is, that's deep. It is. And he's also super, super clever to come up with a way to sort of, you know, break a promise without breaking a promise. And, you know, just exactly as, as Marcus says, you know, just convoluting the logic until it, what he says means what he wants it to instead of what it actually should. And mm-hmm. and I, I kind of love that. And actually, Stephen even pop, uh, spoke up at that point. He was just like, good old Lanier. He has Delenn's best interest at heart, even when she's being overdramatic. How about that? I had forgotten what a great double act Lanier and Marcus are. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. Um, because Lanier is so – when Lanier gets into the room with Marcus – Inevitably, something's wrong, and Lanier becomes super serious. Um, very much not the naive young Minbari who arrived on B5, never looking up at Delin. And it's such a nice contrast between between him and Marcus, who always has a quip handy. But mm-hmm. then when Lanier says, you know, I think he's going to kill her, and... All of a sudden, Marcus is all business. Yeah, that turn of wow, his face just went from one thing to another, and I was just like, "Wow, well yeah. played." You know, I I confess, I do not recall a lot about previous episodes directed by John Flynn. Uh, mm-hmm. I do I do not recall him uh, his episodes standing out particularly, Mm-mm. but I think as fair. But as far as the, especially the Minbari subplot, he gets good performances out of our actors. Also mm-hmm. some good action sequences, too. Again, in the Minbari section, it almost <laughs> made me wonder, did we get a bit of stealth Mike Vehar coming in? Was was John sick a couple of days? I no. no, correct me if I'm wrong. Is John Flynn, he, is he the one that's also the director of photography? Yes, Yes. Okay. So see, and that I believe might have something to do with it because he has been in the trenches and working with these people and these characters for a long time. So even when he's not the director behind the camera, he still has his hands, you know, his fingers in the pudding, so to speak. And, you know, if he was the DP when Mike Vehar was directing, he may have also picked up some some tips on on how to direct to get those good performances. So so I think that we are, while there, there haven't been uh, sort of directorial flourishes that we sometimes see from directors coming out of uh, John Flynn's 
episodes, I think the performances are just getting stronger and stronger on his in his stories because he has a more close tie to the actors. Mm-hmm. And, and then some we of get the some things that Go. he's well, I was just thinking, but and I also think that maybe a bit of the director of photographers. I, um, there were so many quick shots that, um, focused on like the background character or moved from the foreground to the mm-hmm. background, like, um, during the ceremony to instill Delena's Entelza, you know, at first you're focusing on her and she's in the moment and she's being very focused on what's happening. And then there's just this tiniest shift of the camera to show Lanier who is doing, you know, Bill Mooney's doing just as good a job as Mira Furlan in showing his nervousness that, you know, he doesn't see Marcus, he doesn't see Naroon, he doesn't know what's happening. Um, there was a ton in that storyline, there was a ton of nonverbal acting going on that I thought was marvelous. Mm-hmm. And we actually did, you know, speaking of flourishy directorial things, we did get right off the bat a uh, pretty sweet retrograde zoom on the workman who was sucked down into the hole into, uh, you know, Gray 17 in the in the other plot. So, I mean, we did yeah. we definitely did get some some fancy moves. I noticed Just, that immediately. And that was for me the highlight of the whole Zarg plot. <laughs> <laughs> oh, boy. We'll we'll get there. We'll get there. I bet we will. <laughs> Uh, um, okay, so but anything else uh, that you guys want to cover as far as this sort of uh, kind of more important plot? Uh, I love the fight choreography uh, between mm-hmm. uh, Marcus and Naroon. I mean, yeah, it's kind of goofy to uh, be doing stuff behind your back with a big metal pipe, you know. Uh, that, until that you seems... get to, until you can get turned around again. Yeah, I know, <laughs> I know. It's it's. It... It's 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 Jason Carter being Jason Carter or Jason Carter's stunt double being stunt Jason double. <laughs> but anyway, um, it it is a good fight. It's a brutal fight. Uh, I just broke two of your ribs. Oh, excuse me. Uh, sorry, that three. was three. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, it's there really is no question who's got the upper hand here, um, mm-hmm. and there's no false drama here. The false drama is is Naroon actually going to kill Marcus? Not is Marcus going to beat Naroon? Uh, that's that's kind of that's kind of telegraphed that uh, Mar- Marcus doesn't have a chance, but that's okay. He's putting himself on the line to delay Naroon to keep him from spoiling the ceremony. He's willing to die for the one, and the final straw for Naroon is when uh, Marcus cries out in Valen's name, mm-hmm. and the thing that I love about this entire plot is that we just saw where Minbari religion and philosophy comes from. It comes from this guy that Naroon shook hands with. He doesn't know that. <laughs> Rathin doesn't know that. Marcus does. Mm-hmm. But That's true. But the ranger philosophy means just as much to Marcus as he ever did. Under stress, he still shouts out in Valen's name. Mm-hmm. Um. So there, there are a couple of levels here. The fact that uh, everything that the Rangers stand for still means a whole heck of a lot to people like Delin and Lanier and Marcus, who know the whole backstory now. And yet, the weight of all of that history settles on Naroon, hits him like a ton of bricks, and we're sitting back here sort of smugly satisfied if he only knew. <laughs> You know what? Honestly, I, I, I hadn't really put that all together in my own head when I was watching it. I, I definitely made the connection between Marcus saying in Valen's name and the fact that he actually knows what that truly means at this point. So I was I was looking at it with a little nod and a wink on the Marcus side. But I had I had kind of not even put it together that, yes, this is it's human and that's exactly what Naroon is so up in arms about. And yeah, it's that one guy that he did shake hands with him at one point. Yeah. The whole, the whole thing where at the end he says that, that, you know, watching you uh, say Valen's name, you know, you were more Mimbari than I was, all that kind of stuff. And, Mm -hmm. and yeah, for some reason, like I didn't get that, that, uh, you know, nodding behind my smile sort of a thing going on because I was just at that point, so touched by the performance of John Vickery as Naroon Mm -hmm. coming to that realization and not only coming to the realization, but being willing to openly state it. And, you know, he didn't know that Marcus was 
able to hear him, but he walked into the room assuming Marcus would be able to hear him. So it wasn't like he was just speaking to somebody he thought was unconscious. I was just very touched by by that the turn of that character and the performance. So so yes, I'm I'm very glad that you pointed that out, Chip, because now it, it just takes on even more depth. Agreed. The thing that the thing that gets me, and you know, this episode doesn't make a big deal out of it. And if it did, it would probably be a little too much. But um none of them are having this everything we thought we knew is a lie moment mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You know, the backstory holds true the heritage the you know everything everything just holds true um f- for them to the point that when Narun confronts delin and says that you know she you put yourself in the place of the of the prophecy you broke the council as was foretold and now you're going to take take over everything and of course she didn't do that because the prophecy only exists because she did it (laughs) (laughs) yep (sighs) so true and then that great marcus line from the hospital bed (laughs) yep yeah, although I I did feel like his delivery was a little, Too a much. little over labored, maybe yeah. <laughs> just a, a wee bit. It was yeah. so slow that I found myself anticipating what he was going to say incorrectly. So you know, I, mm-hmm. I can't remember. I can't remember exactly what I thought he was going to say, but it's the same thing that Stephen thought he was going to say. Yeah, I and... think painful was the word that I was waiting for, mm-hmm. rather than uncomfortable. Yeah. Yeah, I think it was even before that that I expected him to say to say something slightly different, and mm. it just the gaps were a little too long for me. But I mean, I overall, make it still... clear there were three broken ribs under there. That's true. That's true. <laughs> but then, but then Narun's laugh at the oh, end just yes. brought it all home. Yeah, and Delenn and Lanier looking at one another like, "What the? What the?" Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. Yep. I mean, actually, I not just Narun, but pretty much every single line delivered by a Mimbari in this episode, I thought was perfect. I just, I just loved it so much. I mean, this, the, uh, the scene between Delenn and Lanier going back and forth, I thought was, was wonderful. You know, that, you know, he's going to kill you. That's one interpretation. You know, I think he intends to go beyond harsh, harsh language. language. Like, yes. Yeah. This is, I think that there were lots of examples of, like you were saying earlier, Chip, that, that JMS can do great humor uh, when he's not being overly sticky. And I think that that was, that was definitely the case for most of the, most of the Mimbari lines, whether they were delivered to another Mimbari or to, to somebody else, because, as we already said, the Lanier and Marcus scene was top notch. Top notch. I, I hate to I hate to try to I don't have a summer condo in JMS's head, obviously. <laughs> I hate to I hate to assign motives, but it feels like this was the part of the episode that he cared the most about. Mm-hmm. I can see that. Which makes yeah. sense, because really, you know, how much are you gonna care for a Zarg? Well, I have no doubt that he went into this thing intending for it, for the whole thing, including the Zarg plot, to work. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Uh, You know, nobody nobody sets out to write crap. And I'm Mm -hmm. not going to go so far as to say that he wrote crap. But the Zarg subplot is something that I despise just almost top to bottom. <laughs> so I'm not going. I'm not going. I'm not going to say it's crap. I'm going to say that I hate it. <laughs> well, really, fair. really, all I meant when I said who's going to love a Zarg was more just when you have a sort of one-off monster of the week type character. No matter how well it's written or realized, the love that you're going to have for that is not going to be the same as the love that you're going to have for you know. For this whole plot line involving this race that has been very lovingly crafted and all of these characters that have been, you know, grown and, and brought up from from infancy, script infancy anyway. Um, so, yes, I, I, I was not uh, I was not impugning Im, impugning the Zarg specifically. Uh, in oh, that I'll way. impugn the Zarg. I, 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 hang I on a minute. Hang on a minute. <laughs> you'll, you'll get your shot. Yes, yes. Are, are we ready to, to move on to there? Do, does anybody have anything else on the uh, on the Membari side before we go? Two quick things. Mm-hmm. Um, first, I really liked the fact that JMS was able to slip in a bit of exposition and uh, reporting from the front, so to speak, into Narun's speech. 
about what the warrior caste is their viewpoint as far as the religious caste's actions. Because everything we've seen so far has been from the religious caste and Delenn's point of view, building the White Star Fleet, um, getting the Rangers together. All of this has been happening since the council was broken, and Delenn and the religious caste have been working, and, and Sinclair have been all been working together to get things started. Um, and for Narun to turn that completely on its head and basically throw the same kind of accusations that Sebastian did when the Vorlons tested her. Ooh, good point. Um, and echo that, that what other people might see if they aren't from Delenn's viewpoint, I thought was very helpful. That I really liked that J- JMS was able to slip that in pretty elegantly, in my opinion, um, in Narun's words. Um, and the second thing is, we haven't mentioned much um, in this plot, the interactions with Sheridan and Delenn. You know, but we're seeing Mm -hmm. that, you know, they're becoming even more of a unit and trying to work together. And yet Sheridan has no clue that Delenn might have been in danger, that she might have needed help. And I like that. Mm -hmm. I really like the fact that JMS did not go there and have Sheridan suddenly be the answer to to Delenn's needs and that it was elsewhere. And not only did JMS not take it there. The reasoning for that is beyond reproach as well, because she's not going, I can handle this. This isn't about him. You know, it's, it's, mm-hmm. it's not about him at all. It's right. about Minbar. Mm-hmm. It's about, it's got to be our fight. Right. Um, and so it's not about the relationship at all. It's got nothing to do with it. She has full agency here. She mm-hmm. is being a responsible Minbari leader, and that's the end of that. Right. But I can see so easily that in another writer's hands that somebody would have gone now that we've been getting these, you know, these hints, you know, and then, of course, in War War Without End, we have this possible future of Sheridan and Delenn being together and having a kid. I can see other another writer jumping to push that forward. And JMS doesn't. He does. He keeps everything where it should be compartmentalized until it's time to smush stuff together. Mm-hmm. But oh, it, that little scene where they're talking about her family. Yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah. He has his. He puts his arm. You know. Yeah. He doesn't even think about it. He just as does it. soon as he yeah. sits. Yep. Yeah. And then at the end, they touch foreheads. Yeah. <laughs> it's just oh, yeah. One for the shippers. There is basically. Oh yeah. Basically, what that was. Yep. Okay. Secret. That's all se- I had. A secret. Uh, a secret. You know, and, and, uh, on Minbar, touching foreheads is foreplay. headcanon accepted (laughs) headcanon exactly (laughs) exactly (sighs) on that lascivious note is it time to turn to talk about gray 17 yes it's in the title after all i think it is and i will just come clean right now and say you know what i didn't think it was that bad like i'm not gonna say it was good but I, I, again, I'm sort of shaking my head at past Erica and just being like, it's kind of the same thing after Walkabout. I remembered really hating that subplot with the, the nightclub singer and Dr. Franklin. And in rewatching it, I was like, oh, that's, that's okay. Same thing here. I remember, I remember really hating the whole, you know, cult silliness. And this time I, I didn't, uh, because I felt like it didn't try to take itself terribly seriously. So it didn't, it didn't bother me. And, and Stephen quite liked it. So, oh, okay. So there's that. Yeah. Um, yeah. So. I was kind of in your shoes, I think, somewhat, Erica. I, I mm-hmm. like, like you. I remembered that there was this whole gray seventeen is missing, and it was so horrible. And apparently, it was mostly the um, the Zarg and the not very good um, alien costume more than anything else. Um, I had not remembered the details about the cult living. On the Gray 17 level, I remembered Garibaldi having to go do some detective work. And I kind of liked, you know, as he was working things and going methodically, trying to figure this out. Um, And I had forgotten that uh, Robert Englund had had the major Mm -hmm. part as the cult leader. The worst things for me besides the, the Zarg was, although I really appreciated that, um, that, England's character, Jeremiah. I really appreciated that Jeremiah's philosophy echoes the Mimbari philosophy, like, mm-hmm. you know, really, really strongly. He's practically quoting 
um, mm-hmm. the Mimbari as being in the right as far as mm-hmm. um, our relationship with the universe and how people, how creation and all this sort of thing. But his delivery just a few times went on too long for me. I got bored mm-hmm. a few times watching him play with his fingers and his fingerless gloves and and go on and on and on. Mm-hmm. That was the worst part of it for me. But like you, I didn't hate this subplot as much as I remember hating it. Yeah. And I mean, really, uh, when you're talking about a cult leader, I, I think going on and on and liking the sound of their own voice is probably something that's that's in the job description. I'm just just sort of Point. guessing there. Mm-hmm. So Chip, Chip, please explain to us, you know, with uh, with actual reasons rather than just I hated it. Uh, what it, what is it about <laughs> about this subplot that you hate so much? And and please don't tell me it's the special effects in the Zarg because that I just I don't care. <laughs> Well, that was actually going to be a question that I was going to ask, but I think you've already answered it for <laughs> me. Um, you know, I am one of those fans who, even back in the old days, you know, bringing it back to Doctor Who again, um, silly rubber suits were a problem for me. Huh. Um, I could not suspend disbelief um, for, you know, at, at, below a certain threshold, production value matters to me. And this is a goofy rubber suit creature. Um, and the whole point of it is, you've, you brought a Zarg on here? How did you get a Zarg in here? Line was cut uh, in the editing bay that they smuggled an egg on at one point, but oh well. Um, oh, it's a basilisk. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, I really dislike this episode, this part of the episode for several reasons. One, Robert England's performance. I remember, I remember liking him in V, and mm-hmm. I haven't seen a whole lot of the Nightmare on Elm Street series, but I, he's a talented actor, actually. But this is just too, it's too artificial. It's too fake. It's, uh, he's behaving in an, in a way that I just do not buy. His dialogue, similarly, like Shannon said, you know, it goes on too long, uh, but it's so, it is so nonsensical and so meandering, and ultimately, it has no, it it has no relation to, it has no relation to anything except it finally meanders to the point where, um, when we think we've assumed perfection, we go walk out and say hello to the Zarg and he eats us and we um, and, and we go to, onto a higher plane or something like that. I have very little patience for both of those aspects. Um, I don't have a lot of patience for the rubber suit. I don't even have patience for the notion of the missing floor. Uh, one of our listeners uh, in the um, in the comment threads on this episode uh, talks about how this just it's just he thinks it's a great conceit, you know, the missing floor on the station, you know, my suspicion of belief really breaks down at this point that there's no way that, um, the, the people running this complex space station would ever miss a floor would ever miss that. There, there are, there are 30, not 29 floors. It's just, uh, Despite the hand wavy line, um, when when Garibaldi's talking to the maintenance supervisor, I just don't buy that either. In the end, they just feel like interludes before we get back to the good stuff with Delenn and Neroon and Marcus and Lanier. Uh, and I wish that you know I may actually sit down and do this phantom edit for myself and and just test for myself to see if the if the breaks in the action on the Mimbari plot actually do help improve the Mimbari plot, because uh, we have the mo- we have the break in tension, we go back to this other thing, maybe I wouldn't enjoy the Mimbari stuff as much as I do having the opportunities to duck away from a bit. I don't know. Production value and dialogue and all that stuff does matter to me to a certain extent, and in the end. I just don't give a care about a rubber-suited monster. Um, <laughs> it was it was a bit tough to deal with in Infection. It's tougher for me to deal with in this one. You know, I will agree with you on the the missing floor conceit. Like, I I like the idea of it. I think that it's it's clever, but I just feel like you're right on a space station. 
in, you know, that's that's a giant tin can spinning around in space where their very lives depend on the staff knowing the ins and outs and taking care of this thing very, very well. It's more than just moving a bunch of signs and covering, you know, covering them up. Plus, that would have been a lot of work too, like moving the signs on every single floor all the way, you mm-hmm. know, up to up to the 30th floor. It, any of the you know the the energy conduits going places like you'd think that stuff would be labeled somewhere or connected to a central computer better than it was uh so so yes i will agree that 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 takes a great amount of suspension of disbelief and it bothered me maybe just a, a little bit more than than i would have liked um but i was able to sort of look overlook it just because it was such a goofy idea like this whole side plot is is very it's clearly sort of the the light comic relief up against the you know the serious danger that we've got on the other side with marcus and delenn so so there's that and then also i i will be completely honest here i didn't realize that the Zarg is a bad rubber-suited monster. I don't think it looks that much different from anything else that we have seen on this show. Um, I cannot tell the difference between it and the the quality of, I don't know, Centauri makeup or, you know, and the the Drazi or whatever. I think it was the silhouette for me. I mean, once once they killed the thing and it fell, like the, the midsection of it, the quick glance we got as Garibaldi's looking to make sure it's dead – that wasn't so bad, but watching this thing with a misshapen, obviously non-human head and claws that go all the way down to its knees, that that I didn't buy. Yeah, it sort of I sort of had the same reaction that some fan some Doctor Who fans had to the Fisher King in season 8 of uh Doctor Who. Um season 8, season yeah, series Series 8. Series 8, thank you. Uh, we've got to get our terminology right on this side mm-hmm. of the pond. Um, no, yeah. it's Series 9. Damn it. <laughs> <laughs> but it was... But yeah, there. What, where, where it falls down for me is that all of the other characters, all the other races on Babylon 5, all the makeup, all your Drazis, your Narn, all this other stuff, they are characters. This is a rubber-suited monster, not a rubber-suited character. And that's a point where it sort of breaks down for me. And I think that's actually one of the things that made it better for me because it was it's on screen for like 12, 12 seconds. And it's just it's so very brief that it just it didn't really didn't really play in much for me. But I mean, that's I have never noticed the, the monsters so much on Doctor Who either. So, I mean, for me, uh, when I'm drawn to a science fiction show, it is it is for the ideas and if that is a if that draws me in then i'm able to kind of ignore an awful lot even if i do notice it which i guess in this case i didn't mm-hmm. but uh but when it comes to jeremiah's philosophy i i actually thought that it was very well explained i mean as as you know he's a, a a meandering fool to to some extent but i really thought that that was that was a, a a pretty tightly well done piece of that side plot the you know as shannon said it is very much reminiscent of the the mimbari uh, culture and and religion which he calls out in his very mm-hmm. first speech like he actually talks about how how the mimbari right. almost have it right um and and i his ideas about the universe breaking itself down to to understand itself and once you reach perfection the best way to like i just i thought that that philosophy made complete sense and that all of the stuff that he was saying was very flowery very you know somewhat obnoxious uh, ways of of building on that and i thought that uh, that whole worked really well so, yeah. Shannon, did you have any thoughts on the uh, on the philosophy there, besides the fact that it was so similar to the Mimbari? That that was the main thing that struck me, was that the, it echoed so strongly what we heard from uh, Delenn and Lanier early, earlier in the season. Um, I think the the only other thing that sort of drags this this subplot down for me um, is the the goofy puppet sentry firing trank dart, tranquilizer darts. That that had me putting my head in my hands. It's Mortimer see, Snurd. Was... It's Mortimer Snurd. I see. I was <laughs> utterly creeped out by that because, like, oh, it's kind of creepy. Yeah, but pu- puppets just, yeah. That you don't know how me. close you came to that being the featured image on the website for this episode. I'm just saying. <laughs> oh, no. Uh, yeesh. But but I did also think that that was kind of a nice indicator right off the bat that this was going to be something that's a little bit skewed a little bit just weird um so and and 
Yeah, I, I guess now is a good, as good a time as any for the Stephen check-in because Stephen quite liked it. He he really likes Jerry Doyle. And that was something mm-hmm. he said early on in the episode. He was just like, Yeah, I... and we get a lot. And I love mm-hmm. pretty much most everything that Jerry Doyle's doing in this episode. Uh, you know, what I the, the things I have fault with are because JMS wrote the lines, not because Jerry Doyle delivered them, um, like the last scene. But yeah, in general, seeing him chase down the problem, seeing him reacting as Garibaldi would do to the stuff that um, Robert Englund is spouting off. Yeah, totally. It was very, just, it just seemed like a good Garibaldi being Garibaldi sort of episode. Mm -hmm. And Stephen was just, you know, before he had done very much, this was just, I think he's in the elevator or something like that. Stephen, Stephen just said, I like Jerry Doyle. I like his performance. I think he is the most natural actor on the show. I'm sure that's not a popular opinion, but I don't care. (laughs) I just like him. So Stephen was was just a a big fan of his to start with. So I think that that helped him with the Grade 17 plot. I I don't know that that I'd argue with Stephen about, about that. As far as, you know, naturally fitting the role that he's been given and so forth. I I think Jerry Doyle is close to the top. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And uh, and yeah, when it finished, when when the whole thing was done, I turned to Stephen and I said, what what did you think? And he said, that that was good. I liked it, actually. He said it was good (laughs) for an episode following that big two-parter. He said Mm -hmm. he was expecting a a sidestep episode that didn't tie in. uh, But this one really did. Um, And it just, you know, it it, it, uh, tied straight on from what had happened at the end of the last one so he really did mm-hmm. like the episode order in that case and and after that i said well let you in on something here this is you know widely believed to be one of the worst episodes of bell on five ever and you should have seen the look of shock on his <laughs> face he was like what what are you talking about perceived um, fan wisdom i'm sure yeah. he's dealt with it in another fandom somewhere Mm-hmm. Yep. And he was he actually he liked Robert Englund. He he said that the Babylon Five regularly does have weirdos where we get crazy roles that are played by good actors. You know, mm-hmm. he's like, yeah, we had Reg Barkley a while back and Michael York and David Warner. He's like, we could have ended up with another Jinxo, but we didn't. We had Robert <laughs> Englund. So so while his performance might not have been terribly natural, uh, it certainly wasn't as bad as it could have been. Um, but Stephen wanted me to point out he he's just said there are th- at le- there are three episodes that are infinitely worse already, and I'm not even counting TKO. He's like. <laughs> He's, he, and then he turns to me and goes, sick transit veer is still the worst. Write that down. <laughs> so he, he wanted to make make it clear that I uh, that I recorded that for everyone. So he was he was actually a genuine fan of this episode. And and I think maybe that helped me a little bit too, watching it mm-hmm. and then talking about it with somebody who, who liked it so much. Right. But but yeah, this has this has gone far, far up in my estimation from from where I expected. Mm-hmm. Yeah, same here. And I mean, I totally lay it at the feet of not remembering when the um, new ranger being named came in that I will totally, totally own up to that. Mm -hmm. And as far as the received fan wisdom part of it goes, um, I did actually dip in and and read parts of the Lurker's Guide to Stephen, you know, because he he, he won't look at it himself because he's scared of spoilers. But uh as I was reading through there, I read the bits uh, in the JMS speak section about how he was so apologetic uh, about the Zarg. And mm-hmm. I, I just I have to wonder a little bit how how much that plays into the received fan wisdom of the fact that it was bad because, oh, we've, you the know, the showrunner yeah, yeah. says it was bad. Therefore, it must be terrible. And then that just sort of builds upon itself year mm-hmm. after year. And thinking about it, I have to wonder if it's just the fact that it. I am trying to remember the last time that we had a sort of one-off, complete rubber suit style villain since Infection. I think there's got to have been at least one or two, but because most of this season has been so tightly focused on core characters for the most part, and and our guest stars have by and large been either a member of the same race where the makeup has been perfected, or they've been playing humans like Michael York... That, Mm -hmm. you know, it's just been so long that suddenly to have what, you know, is, you know, the essentially rubber suited monster is just sort of jarring in a way. I don't know. For me, as the voice of received fan wisdom, (laughs) this feels too much like a season one episode. Um, At least as far as the Grey 17 plot is concerned. And I keep checking myself i keep wanting to call it the a plot but it's really not the a plot it, no it just has the title it just has the title uh they they 
pretty much share the weight of this episode, but the Minbari plot is clearly more important and uh, it's clearly more enjoyable. By this point in season three, that's what I'm here for. And I'm not here for the side trip into the weird. And Mm -hmm. if it had been executed better, I might have been more forgiving of it, but it's just, it's just not what I'm here for. And I will be one of those fuddy duddy uh, received fan wisdom types. And I will sit here with my arms folded on the edge of my seat with a pout. (laughs) You You do you, hon. Mm -hmm. And I think that one of the other reasons that I didn't like it so much back in the day was that we had had such a long wait before we got to to walk about in this episode. There was such a big gap that I I was right there with you, Chip. I was after all this time, I wanted more movement on the excitement of the big the big things that were happening. And this really did feel like a step back. You're right. It feels like it feels like a mini season one episode jammed into a season three episode. So that's that is definitely a valid Valid criticism. Yeah. So, I, so you I, pout, I, buddy. I appreciate. I, I appreciate your. Um, I, I appreciate your permission for me to <laughs> pout. Um, I will. Having having said all that, I will say one thing that I didn't notice before that I will say to this episode's credit. I love the way that Minbari philosophy and uh, Jeremiah's philosophy are kind of the same thing. They are speaking the same language. Only there is this culture with a thousand years of prophecy and many more thousand years of tradition like that, and Jeremiah, and they're saying both. They're saying the same things, but one is a respected and uh, reputable culture and civilization, and the other is just this crank on mm-hmm. on, on a on a missing sector of the station. And they're saying the same things. Uh, so that's actually kind of almost sub- subversive and clever. Mm-hmm. Um, and then you take it a further step and you realize that the that a lot of what the Mimbari believe is because of this human guy who traveled back in time. And, you know, <laughs> so there is, there is some subversive stuff that you can read into this thing. Um, mm-hmm. And I think that that is a point in the episode's favor, even if it may not have been entirely intended that way. But it's Narun and, and Delin and Marcus and Lanier aside, it's still a crap episode. Sorry. <laughs> Uh, one last thing uh, on that that side of the plot that I that I thought was silly, but I actually ended up liking was Garibaldi's speech at the end when he's talking to Sheridan. Because for one thing, it felt very Garibaldi for him it to does. just you know just to dive into that, and also it really very much read like Dorothy at the end of the Wizard of Oz, and you were there, and you were there, and you were there. It was just he was he was totally channeling Judy Garland, and I appreciated that. So <laughs> Jerry Doyle channeling Judy Garland. <laughs> I'll take it. I will never be able to unsee that. <laughs> Jerry Doyle in a gingham dress. <laughs> okay, okay, now yeah. you've gone one step too far. Dude. <laughs> um, all right. Well, is there anything else anybody wants to cover before we uh, we dive on into spoiler space and get our homework? I'm good. I'm purged. Okay. I think I'm done. All right. My very, very last little thing is just to say that the dress that Delenn wears in this episode is kind of like my prototypical Delenn dress. When I picture her, it is it is either this one or something that's very, very similar to this. Mm -hmm. So thumbs up to the costume designer once Mm. again. All right. Um, I did mention a second ago homework. Yes. Yes, you've got homework. So everybody, please watch. And The Rock cried out, no hiding place. Shannon will take the reins to take us through that overly titled episode. Seriously, that's a mouthful. (laughs) Hard to say. Uh, But until then, please visit us online at B5 Audio Guide on Twitter and Tumblr and on our website at B5AudioGuide.com, where you can chatter to your heart's content about Zargs and fighting pikes and rubber monsters and whatever else you feel like. Uh, But if it is something that we have not seen yet, be sure to keep it to the spoiler-friendly threads and leave the spoiler-free threads for all the stuff up to and including this episode. And if you are one of those spoiler-free types, now is your time to hop into the turbo lift and start counting. Because while you're looking for a mysterious missing level, we will be taking a transport through a jump gate straight into spoiler space. (laughs) 
Okay, you guys, right now, the only thing I can think about is how cute are Sheridan and Delenn at this point? Oh, my God. Oh, my God. Oh, my God. <laughs> Super cute. Almost there. Almost there. Oh, so close. So close. I can taste it. Yeah. I'm pretty excited. <laughs> yep. Uh, but as as for, like, you know, more heavy, important future stuff, there's there are some <laughs> other things going on, I suppose. Here and uh, there. For one thing, Stephen didn't uh, appear in this episode a whole lot, but uh, Dr. Franklin will resurface in not too long. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, I and I'm really looking forward to that uh, performance. Uh, split screen stuff is kind of hokey under a in, in a lot, and it may feel a little hokey when I watch it this time. But mm-hmm. um, I, I'm so I'm so I'm so there for this. I'm so there for where he's going, uh, and the fact that Stephen, as a drug addict who is dealing with his um who is dealing with withdrawal he is not in a good place right now he is still committed though to this whole notion of walkabout and he is about to face himself and to find out that this was not the right answer he shouldn't have been doing this he he was running away from his problems instead of facing them I, mm-hmm. this is going to be great i i'm i'm really excited about this coming up mhm here, here. Yeah. But his, but where he is right now really does set up where he's gone. Oh, and we're going to have that little bitty moment uh, where he's going. He's just going to be treated like a vagrant by the mom walking through, uh, walking through down below with her kid and saying, you know, be careful mm-hmm. with the, those people. Yep. And he is one of those people. Ah, oh, this is. Cr- it's candy. It is. <laughs> it is. And we'll get there. And what else do we have? Well, we've got, you know, every time they talk about telepaths and using telepaths and recruiting telepaths, I think forward to the telepaths, um, which, you know, there's some excitement. I'm looking forward to seeing Lita, you know, step up and and be a a major player. But then, you know, down the road even further, we get the repercussions of that. We get, you know, Byron and his ilk. So you got to take the good with the bad. Yeah. I had forgotten, though, as painful as the scene between Zack and uh, Con Man Guy was, um, I had forgotten that this is actually kind of an important scene because the telepath war, uh, not the telepath war, the shadow war, depending on telepaths, I like having this little bit of real work going on. Okay, let's mm-hmm. recruit the telepaths. It's, you know, they don't. They just don't come out of nowhere on the ships uh, in the fight in during shadow dancing. You know, um, they're actually building their own little telepath army now, and I like Babylon Five always excels when it feels like a lived-in universe where mm-hmm. the people are actually setting the groundwork and sweating the details and that was a detail to be sweated indeed very true and uh and then you know our our primary plot with Naroon uh watching him again sort of make a little bit of a, a an about face uh he's got quite a path in front of him i feel like this was the important turning point for his character but boy where he ends up taking it is kind of amazing yeah when yeah, next- not only to not only at this point he recognizes wh- he it's not that he recognizes Delin's authority but he recognizes where her authority is coming from and that it is a stronger thing than he can fight at this time and you know and and it's going to take him a while but then he's going to get to the point where yes she is his authority and he sacrifices himself to save her, to save their people, and to stop their civil war that winds up happening anyway, uh, despite Lanier's efforts. Um, and yeah, it's going to be so good. <laughs> that moment when he says, when he calls Delin until Za. Oh, mm-hmm. chills. And, 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 and you're right, this sets up this from here on out. This is the moment when he dies. He just doesn't know it yet. <laughs> yeah, actually, you know, at the end when he's talking to Marcus and they, uh, talking about how the uh, Denshar was, you know, to the death. And he said, there was a death. It was mine. It's like, yeah, mm-hmm. you, you you just put that right together, Chip, like it was and will be. Yeah. 
Because yeah. he winds up at the end uh, renouncing his status in the warrior caste and embracing the religious caste. So the, mm-hmm. the death of the identity he lived all his life goes away, um, starts to go away at this point, and then uh, finishes. Yeah. One thing that I wish was made more of in future episodes is Delin's status as Ranger One. Yeah, we don't I, see enough of that. Yeah, mm-hmm. that's a point, because uh, just as the conversation is happening uh, on Minbar between uh, Delin and Rathan, is that the right name? Rathin. Rathin. You know, the first thing that trotted into my head is, here comes the one who is. And yeah, we we don't get as much of that as we should. Sheridan is the leader of the Shadow War, for the most part. When we get to into the fire, and when they are in, um, you know, having their uh, psychic war with the shadows and the Vorlons, it's Sh- it's Sheridan and Delin together, mm-hmm. of course, and and they are as equals in the in in this. But when we get to the military stuff uh, from here on out, it's pretty much it's it's pretty conventional. It's Sheridan being the big damn hero. And we only get a few. I think there's only one other episode where Delin's actually wearing the Ranger One cloak, and I really do think more should have been made of that. I agree, but at the same time, you also kind of have to look at her hesitance to even take on that role. I mean, she really is. Narun kind of had a point about the warrior cast being somewhat of a more fitting place for these these rangers. You know, they're not entirely warriors, but that clearly, you know, based on Marcus's training, that is something that is a part of what they do, and that is not not the thing that calls to Delenn's heart. She is is definitely more a leader, an organizer, um, a, a strategist. And and I, you know, I part of me just wants to, you know, headcanon chalk this up to the fact that that's, that's not a, a role that she stepped into on purpose. And it's not a role that she necessarily wanted to take on. So, so maybe she doesn't do as much with it as she could have had she been a different kind of character. I, I think they still could have explored that even. It's just kind of like Chip said, mm-hmm. the whole idea of her being the leader of the Rangers, reluctantly or not, it doesn't get addressed very much anymore. And yeah. I think it could have, one yeah. way or the other. She she is the leader of a military force, and she pretty much cedes that authority to Sheridan at every, at every turn mm-hmm. going forward. And see, that's the part that I'm okay with, because I feel like that is a thing that she would do. I mean, Delenn is one of the smartest characters we have on the show, and I think she she recognizes that Sheridan has the military background and the military mind to make better use of this tool than she could. So really, I mean, delegating is still being a good leader. That's that's my thought. I mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, I, 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 can, I can see that. Uh, I just... You know, we just had an episode where we just came out of an episode where you are the one who was, you are the one who is, you are the one who will be. I just would like more time to be devoted to her as the mm-hmm. one who is. Yes. I don't think that she I don't think that she is reduced to just being Sheridan's girlfriend slash wife in the in future episodes. Mm-mm. But um, but but it is kind of conventional for Sheridan to be the big damn hero, and he you know winds up mm-hmm. being the big damn hero. <laughs> Don't get me wrong; I would love to have seen more of Delenn just being super kick ass. Like that is a thing that I would have cheered for. But it, it is Matters also a of thing honor, that I'm... first episode of this season. She mm-hmm. kicks ass with a fighting pike. Mm-hmm. That is I, true. I want. I did want a little bit more of that. We mm-hmm. do get her leadership, um, especially uh, in wrapping up the Membari Civil War aspect, and yet, um, you know, um, yeah. There's, but we're there's greedy. still there's yeah there's still a part of me though that that likes that she doesn't become the the militaristic kick-ass big damn hero kind of character because. Uh, as as exciting as it would be to see a female character be that on screen, I agree, we don't get that often enough. We certainly didn't get that often enough at the time. But at the same time, I also 
like seeing characters that are the heroes in in other ways than that and i feel like that is that that if i were to truly ask for for more from delen i would have wanted to see more of her being a big damn hero in the non-militaristic ways her given a, a little bit more to do on the just the the, the leadership side yeah just my one last uh, point on this is um we have the scene towards the end of uh, the fourth season episode, The Long Night, when uh, Breaking, Brad, Breaking Bad's Brian Cranston, as the captain of uh, one of the White Stars, um, is ordered by Sheridan to uh, sacrifice himself to set up the conclusion of the Shadow War. And Cranston's character, uh, Captain Erickson, uh, takes his orders from Sheridan and then upon taking those orders and getting ready to sign off, then he issues a salute to Delin. Right. Mm-hmm. And that's just wrong to me. That's just wrong. <sighs> well, we'll talk about that when we get there, because I don't I actually remember that scene. So <laughs> <laughs> is there anything else you guys want to cover here in spoiler space before we mosey? It was a tiny thing, but um, when Lanier goes into Marcus's quarters and looks around to see that Marcus has practically nothing there, he's just glad that um, Ivanova was able to find him a place. Mm-hmm. Um, it made me think of um, how uh, Vorlon uh, Kosh number two is going to be treating Lita in the not-too-distant mm-hmm. future, basically forcing her to live um, – with, you know, absolutely nothing in her place but a bed. And that's only because she's a human. And you know what? You weak little puny humans have to sleep. <laughs> um, but that immediately made, made me think of, um, we know that the Vorlons have been meddling more in the Mimbari recently, or for a long time, we don't know how long. But there's been a history between the two of them. So that that resonated, the idea of um, Marcus taking on... Um, some Mimbari aspects of not needing much and then having, you know, turn around and have a Vorlon basically making a human not have anything. Ah, yeah, I didn't put that together. But now that I see that, it's a it's a nice little parallel. Uh, Chip, anything else? I'm good. I think I have digested Gray 17 is missing enough for this <laughs> evening. Fair enough. Fair enough. All right. Well, yeah. Is this, the, is this how long has it been since uh, one of us has been a real outlier among the rest of us about an episode? <laughs> it, you know, it makes while. for it's been a while, but it makes for good po- podcasting when it happens. <laughs> Thank you, boss. Yeah. All right. Well, I guess I guess it's about time that we wrap this up. We have been going on. It seems like the episodes that uh, that are the. Uh, well, the crappiest sometimes, or that somebody thinks are the crappiest, are the ones that go on the most. So I think it's important for us to save some energy for our discussion of And the Rock Cried Out next time, because mm-hmm. that'll be fun. Oh, boy, will yes, that be will. fun? Um, yeah, we're looking forward to that one a little bit more than we were looking forward to this one, I'm, mm-hmm. I'm going to guess. So please do join us for that next time. Uh, and thanks, as always, to you spoiler hounds who listen through to the end of the podcast. We appreciate sort of having our little private time together every episode. And if you happen to be somebody who is listening through the podcast for a second time in the far future, you know, after having watched the series in, in its entirety and going back and starting over, uh, special thanks to you guys for really sticking with us and joining us in the secret clubhouse this time through. So, so salute to you guys from the past. People uh, of 2025, we salute yeah. you. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you're pretty neat. You're pretty neat. So anyway, I now pass the baton to Shannon and head off toward Narn to prepare for what's about to go down under the rock. Uh, So until then, this is Erica in Edmonton, Shannon in Durham, and Chip in Gray 18. (laughs) And you've been listening to the audio guide to Babylon 5. (laughs) 